1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15, and uh, we're going to read from verse 12. Read and hear together God's Word. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ." Then comes the end, when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15 from 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish." There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory." It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. 
And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We'll be uh, looking in this next while at uh, the theme of the resurrection of the body. So we'll be looking at various uh, parts of the Bible, but it will be most helpful for you to have 1 Corinthians 15 there. We'll be um, uh, basing our thoughts there, if you like. Uh, so please do that, and let's pray together as we come to God's Word. God, our Father, You are the author of these words, and we need You to be their interpreter to us. We need You to come by Your Holy Spirit and speak them afresh to us, uh, that they might live for us and in us, that they might do their work. And so be with us, we pray, uh, work in our hearts, that we might receive Your truth, and that it might do its work in us, so that we might glorify You in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, I read a kind of imaginative description of what we would see were we able to, uh, to step inside one cell in the human body. You could kind of magnify it all up or shrink yourself right down uh, and come to one cell in the human body. This is what it said. Uh, we would find there an object of unparalleled complexity. On the surface of the cell, we would see millions of openings, like the portholes of a vast spaceship, opening and closing to allow a continual stream of materials to flow in and out. If we were to enter one of these openings, we would find ourselves in a world of supreme technology and bewildering complexity. We would see endless, highly organized corridors and conduits branching in every direction away from the perimeter of the cell, some leading to the central memory bank in the nucleus, and others to assembly plants and processing units. The nucleus itself would be a vast spherical chamber inside of which we would see all neatly stacked together in order to raise the miles of coiled chains of DNA molecules. A huge range of products and raw materials would shuffle along all the manifold conduits in a highly ordered fashion to and from all the various assembly plants in the outer regions of the cell. We would see 
artificial languages and their decoding systems, memory banks for information storage and retrieval, elegant control systems regulating the automated assembly of parts and components, error fail-safe and proofreading devices utilized for quality control, assembly processes involving the principle of prefabrication and modular construction. What we would be witnessing would be an object resembling an immense automated factory, a factory larger than a city, and carrying out almost as many unique functions as all the manufacturing activities of man on earth. And it would be capable of replicating its entire structure within a matter of a few hours. That's one cell. Described by uh, one Nobel Prize winning molecular biologist as more complex than New York City. And your body has something like 30 trillion of these cells several hundred different kinds. The human body is a truly astonishing thing. And that's before we even get into the subject of the human mind and how it operates and how it relates to the body. It's just breathtaking. Our bodies function in these astounding ways all the time, and then they break down and die. And all that complexity and vitality and activity is reduced to dust, literally. <coughs> For we are dust, and to dust we must return. But at the gravesides of Christians, we speak amazing words. We now commit our brother, our sister, to the grave, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And today, the creed reminds us that this resurrection that we believe in relates not simply to our essence or our soul or our spirit, but that we believe in the resurrection of the body. We believe that our eternal life will be an embodied life. So this morning, we start with body matters. Uh, I wonder how you feel about your body. Uh, it's an awkward question to ask, isn't it? You can't really get away from that question uh, today because our culture is obsessed with the human body and with physical appearance. We have entire industries, vast ones. Probably some of the biggest industries that we have are, are, exist solely because we place such enormous value on outward physical appearance. People find themselves defined by what they look like and by what shape they are and by what clothes they wear. And, and for multiple generations now, um, the image obsession is simply the air that they have breathed all their lives. I recently um, saw a little girl. Uh, she must have been about seven or eight years old. She was standing in Boots the Chemist. She was just standing over at, over at the side in Boots the Chemist, and she was standing there with her smartphone like this. Trying, trying to work out what, what angle and what lighting would make her look best. And, and I wanted to weep. Seven-year-old girl. To spend, as, as, as so many of us do, to spend our lives taking photos of ourselves 
and then, and then sifting through them to work out which ones look best. I mean, that's, that's, just, that's just pathological. That's a disease. Whatever our culture claims to believe, what it proclaims loud and clear is that our value as people, I, I, genuinely, this is no exaggeration, our value as people depends on our physical attractiveness. We enslave people under the tyranny of body image. And, and, and while shouting loudly about me too, and we're all going to be liberated from all that stuff now, we continue to objectify the body more than ever to sell everything from perfume to breakfast cereals. That's just what we do. And, and, and often then, the, the honest truth is, we can end up with a kind of love-hate attitude towards our bodies. Um, on the one hand, we are, I just can't think of any other way to put it, we're attached to them. Um, we, they're, they're a part of us. We know instinctively that there's something good about our physicality. Our bodies give us pleasure in all kinds of ways, our senses. Um, I, I suppose God could have made us so that we could survive by swallowing one pebble per day. No reason he couldn't have done that, um, but he didn't. He filled the world with amazing food, and, and he gave us these astonishing things called taste buds that allow us to experience all the, the tastes and textures of the, of the world. He made our bodies, and, and he made them astonishing. Have you, ever, have you ever just sat and looked at your hands? Do, do, it's an absolutely astonishing thing. Just sit and look at your hand, and by, and by something that happens in here, I can just, you know, that's, that's an astonishing thing. Or, or, or consider the... the the kind of color perception that these eyes of ours uh, give us. It's breathtaking. The, the, the ability to run and not fall over, hopefully most of the time. Um, just, just all the things that, that our bodies allow us to do, the way we can smell the world around us, sexual intimacy, the, the way our circulation works all the time, the blood pumping through us all the time, the, the, the heart, hundreds of thousands of beats, on it goes. All these things are God's good creation. He created, and then he looked and he saw that it was very good. And so our bodies are, are supremely impressive, and they are hugely precious, and yet we're so often insecure in them, aren't they? they? They cause us so much angst and so much grief. You might be seven years old, and your body is causing you grief. Your, your, your self-image is causing you grief. You might have a lifelong struggle with with your weight or with maintaining a healthy body. And for all of us, at some point, health issues begin to make their presence known. And for some of us, they can be very serious lifelong issues, can't they? For, for some of us, sometimes it can feel as if our bodies almost betray us. It's almost like something's turned against me here. My body has become my enemy. It's attacking me. The Bible recognizes all of that, all the good, all the bad, and it tells us why. It gives us an explanation for the whole thing. The choice which the human race has made to reject God's rule, to, to live our own way, has had consequences for us in every aspect of life. It, it has affected us morally, it's affected us spiritually, it's affected us socially, and it has affected us physically. And so the body becomes much more ambiguous than it originally was. And, and you see that in the Bible, you see it in the way that the New Testament talks about the body. Um, uh, there, are, there are at least three ways in which our bodies can present us with problems. Um, the first is that they can very easily lead us astray. 
Some of the most dangerous temptations that we face have to do with the body. Temptations, for example, to allow ourselves to idolize physical, physical appearance. And temptations to, to take these miraculous hands of ours and use them not to bless others, but to, to hurt others. Temptations to use our sexuality in ways that go against God's purposes. Temptations to use our tongues to form words that hurt rather than heal. Uh, and little wonder then that Paul describes the body, Romans 6, 6, as the body of sin. He's talking about our, our bodies, the, the body of sin. Now, it's not that the body is inherently sinful. Adam and Eve had physical bodies before sin ever entered the world, and they were perfect and naked and unashamed. But the point is that in a fallen world, the body is peculiarly susceptible to sinful temptation. Our bodies can lead us astray. And then secondly, Paul refers to the body in the passage we read, 1 Corinthians 15 at verse 53, as this perishable body. It's perishable. Our bodies not only um, can tempt us to sin, they can also, as I said, almost feel like they turn against us. One of the symptoms of our fallenness, one of the signs that there's something far wrong in the world is, that there's, is, is the prevalence of disease and decay in our bodies. They break down. And, and for the healthiest of us, the passing years will be accompanied by the breakdown of our bodies in different ways. Eyesight deteriorates, memory isn't what it used to be, joints are afflicted by arthritis, we don't have the strength or the stamina that we used to have, your hair falls out, all sorts of horrible things can happen. Many of us will be afflicted by very serious things, by disease, by cancers and heart problems, and some by the loss of mental abilities. We've all known the pain of watching others that we love succumb to these things. Perishable bodies. And then, of course, ultimately, these bodies of ours will die. The body is not only a body of sin, Romans 6, not only a perishable body, 1 Corinthians 15, it's also what Paul describes in Romans 7, 24, as this body of death. It is a mortal body. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And so these are these are strange things, aren't they? These bodies of ours, this, this paradoxical mixture of wonder and weakness. We rejoice in them, and they frustrate us. And, and in response, different religions and philosophies have, have taken different approaches, but, but many of them have taken one particular approach and said, well, you know, actually, the body is bad. The body is essentially negative. Physical stuff is, is not good. It, it holds you down. And what you need is to be liberated into a realm of, of pure spirit. That, that's, that's freedom. And, and so there's a kind of negative view of the body. Uh, matter doesn't matter. Only, only spirit matters. Only the soul matters. And, and people have sometimes assumed that that's what Christianity teaches too, and that it therefore has a negative view of the body and of sexuality and so on. That's not what the Bible says at all. It's not what Christians believe at all. The Bible's view of the body in, in all of its aspects, its physicality, sexuality, all the rest of it, um, is, is immensely positive. The body matters. We were created with bodies. They're a central part of who we are. We do express ourselves and relate to one another through our bodies, and that is a good thing, not a bad thing. Our bodies are not all of what we are. That's the mistake our culture makes sometimes, but they're certainly not nothing. 
and they're certainly not dispensable. And the truth is that the hope that is held out to us in the gospel is a distinctly earthy and physical hope. It is the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the body. Christian faith answers to that intuitive sense that we have, that we we simply are embodied beings. There's something utterly wrong with with this idea of the, the, the soul and the body being parted from one another, being ripped apart. That is not how it should be. We are irreducibly physical. And when through the good news of Jesus Christ we are given hope for a life beyond this life, when when eternity is held out to us, it cannot ever be an eternity in which we become less than what we presently are. That's, That's not what lies before us. The future existence held out to us in God's Word is one in which we will be given a redeemed and transformed life. We will be given redeemed and transformed personalities and hearts and we will be given redeemed and transformed bodies. Far from saying that the body is is bad and needs to be escaped from, the Christian faith teaches the body is good and needs to be perfected. Christianity is, is unique, absolutely unique, in this ability to face the reality of bodily weakness and death and to explain it but but also to overcome the power of death and to affirm the enduring significance and goodness of physical existence. And Paul is completely open, isn't he, in 1 Corinthians about saying, actually, the whole of the gospel rests on this. If, If this isn't true, then it's all over. Christ is not raised. If the resurrection isn't true, this this doctrine of the resurrection isn't true, then Christianity is a sham. And and, and it does come down to the the particularity of one resurrection, doesn't it? Verse 14, 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But in fact, one of those great moments in the Bible, isn't it? But in fact, Verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And if we want to understand what lies before us, if we want to know, well, okay, we can talk about resurrection in the future, but what does that actually look like? Then this is where we need to begin, because this is where we find what you might call the resurrection prototype. We we looked at the resurrection of Christ in this series, of course, Um, On the third day, he rose again from the dead. But here, I just want to highlight how Paul, how closely Paul connects Christ's resurrection and ours. What we saw earlier in the series was that his resurrection secures ours. If he rose, then we will rise. What we see here, what I want us to see now, is that his resurrection provides a pattern for ours. As he rose, so we will rise. And all of this, he's, he is the first fruits of a great harvest to follow. And the harvest isn't different from the first fruits, it's more of the first fruit. And that answers again to, to deep instincts within us, the, the instinct to live, to exist in our bodies. It's, it's interesting, it's, it's so deep that the vast majority of people today who have lost all belief in God, this is one of the things that they want to cling to, isn't it? This is one of the kind of vestiges of of Christian thinking and a Christian worldview that people just just don't want to let go of. 
What's going to happen after you die? And, and the majority of people today um, would still say, you know, Christians at all, but would still say, they, they'll, they'll say something like this, well, I'd like to believe. I'd like to think there's something. Well, that's, that's, that's an interesting that's an interesting fact that you would like to believe something. And, and, and that, that is so, so, such a widespread response, but it's characterized by three things. Number one, it's groundless. It's pure wish fulfillment. It comes out of something very real, the, the desire to live. But, but there's no actual reason apart from the resurrection of Christ, apart from the gospel. There's no reason why it would be true. Um, so it's groundless. Number two, it's uncertain. That, that kind of belief must always remain a kind of elusive hope. Will it happen? Will it not happen? Who knows? Number three, it, it is in any case very vague. The details vary, but most often it's something very ethereal. It's half-formed notions of, of ghostly figures walking around or something. They walk towards the light, all that stuff. Compare that with the experience of the followers of Jesus who stood in a room looking at him after his resurrection from the dead. What, what, they became witnesses to what happened, witnesses willing to die for what they'd seen. So what characterized their hope? Number one, it wasn't groundless, it was rational. They had a basis for believing what they believed. Number two, it wasn't uncertain, it was certain. He was right there. He was standing right in front of them. Touch him. Number three, it wasn't vague, it was concrete. This is what resurrection looks like. Here it is. They would never need to wonder again or guess. This is what it will be like. Here's Jesus right in front of us in his body. He's not a disembodied presence. He's, he's not in a realm of pure spirit. He's not being absorbed into some general consciousness of all things or some such nonsense. He himself says, look, you know, they, they, when you, you know, in Luke's, Luke's gospel, Luke 24, he appears in front of them and it says, you know, they were terrified because they thought he was a spirit. And, he's, and he goes out of his way. You know, a spirit, come touch me. Spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as I have. No, isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? The resurrection of the body, flesh and bones, physical stuff. And, and, and so he says to them, look, look, it's me. It, it is I myself. It's me. It's not someone else that's come. It's me. And he can be seen and heard and touched, and they speak with him, and no doubt they laughed with him and cried with him, and he eats with them. And later in Acts 10, that, that's one of the things that Peter remembers. We are witnesses, he says. We ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He's, he's preaching, and, and, and you can, in his mind's eyes, he's, he's picturing it. Remember that night. Remember those times. And the, the way that Jesus appeared to his disciples at the resurrection is designed to make them confident that this is a bodily resurrection, and, and then also designed to show that in some ways his body has been transformed. It hasn't become less than it was, it has become more than it was. It's become so much more that people don't always recognize him instantly, they have to kind of look again, but then they, then they see so clearly. It's him. 
and, and I think we're intended, there's a bit of um, debate about it, but I think the most natural understanding of the text is that we're intended to understand that he appears to his disciples in locked rooms without unlocking a door and coming in. So his body isn't exactly as it used to be, is it? But it's a body, flesh, bones. So the resurrection body of Jesus has continuity with what has gone before, but has also been made new. It's been made perfect and incorruptible, and it has been given capacities that it didn't have before. And it's a prototype. And that's important because the resurrection prototype points us to the resurrection promise. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3.20. He uses such a, such a striking expression, Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Isn't that an amazing thing? He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. This body of sin, this perishable body, this body of death will be made glorious. That's, that's what he's describing here in 1 Corinthians 15. And, and it's why the pattern matters so much, the resurrection of Jesus as the prototype for ours. Paul is, is, is giving us this, verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, the perishable body we got from Adam, so shall we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, the glorified body we get from Christ. So, what happens? Well, if you die before Christ comes, your body will turn to dust, and your spirit will be with Him. Then, when He comes, your body will be raised and given back to you. Body and spirit, body and soul will be united again. Now, exactly what that will involve is clearly beyond all description, is beyond any experience that we have or have any real analogy for. Um, but Paul does say something about it, so look at verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And then he develops this fascinating image. You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. This is an astonishing image. You and I are to be transformed. So it is with the resurrection of the body, he says. The day is coming. The day is coming when, 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 when you will realize that, that the body that you've had up to that point is, was just a seed. And, and now you've grown into what you were always meant to be. You, you used to be this tiny little grain but now you're, you're a rose in full bloom. You used to be an acorn. Now you're an oak. I love that picture of, of Paul. Paul says, you know, you don't, the, the thing you plant isn't what you're going to finally get. I love, as I read it, the picture came into my mind of somebody trying to plant an oak tree. You know, bring in 15 diggers and try. No, no, you don't need to do that. You plant an acorn. 
And, and, and Paul's, Paul's telling us that kind of transformation is analogous to, to, to what will happen at the resurrection of the body. Your, your lowly body will be transformed into a glorious body. You'll be, somehow you'll be recognizably you, but you will be transformed and glorified. You'll be made fit for the presence of God and made fit for eternal joy. Now, there are lots of things about that that we won't understand until we get there. But let me give you three things that we can know corresponding to what we saw earlier about our earthly bodies. Number one, your new body will not be a perishable body, but an imperishable body. Verse 42, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It will never decay. It will never cause you pain. Whatever medications you take now, you will not need them. There is no arthritis in glory. The word cancer will not exist anymore. There is no depression. All of this is gone forever. If you're a doctor, I'm afraid you're going to have to find something else to do. And the same applies if you're an undertaker. Because number two, this new body will not be a body of death, but of life. Verse 43, what is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. There's a day coming when you will be more full of life than you ever dreamed possible. Your new body, whatever else it is, will be magnificent. And, and never again will you know death or mourning or crying or pain. Number three, and this is precious too, this new body will not be a body of sin, but one of utter joyful purity and uninterrupted fellowship with Christ. It will be a body that delights in holiness. Verse 44, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, spiritual there does not mean, we, we, we kind of almost want to read, it's so natural, it's raised spiritual. We almost want to read that instinctively as spiritual means not physical. That's, that's not what it's saying at all. A, a spiritual body is a body animated and empowered by the Spirit of God and fit for the clear perception and full enjoyment of spiritual realities. It's a body fit for heaven, fit for the presence of God. The glories of heaven are such that our bodies, our present bodies, couldn't possibly take them in. And so God will renew our bodies after the likeness of His Son so that we might have the capacity to behold Him and to revel in Him forever. He's going to give you a new body because you'll need it. This, this world makes a lot of noise about the body. Christians know this is a good thing, but, you know, it's just a lowly thing. But one day it will be made a glorious thing. This is just a seed. This is just an acorn. One day. I want to close with two reasons why this matters so much, all of this. The first is that it matters for it matters for your understanding of the depths of God's love for you and the goodness of His plans for you, for your hope 
in future glory and for your endurance in the faith. Life is hard. And disease in its various forms is one of the things that makes it hard. Many of you will know the story of Johnny Erickson Tada, um, who at 17 years old broke her neck and became quadriplegic. She's written of the impact on her life of the doctrine of the resurrection of the body. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone spinal cord injured like me? Or someone who is cerebral palsied, brain injured, or who has multiple sclerosis. Imagine the hope this gives someone who is manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. Most of our stories are a lot less dramatic than than Joni's, but all of our stories involve pain, and for all of us, there is such hope and joy and strength in the prospect of an eternal day when we will be healed. And, and, and that does what that kind of future hope always does in the Scriptures and in the Christian life. That, that future hope reaches back into, into now, into today, and, and gives us strength now. It's really striking. Uh, that verse I mentioned in Philippians 3, when Paul speaks about lowly bodies being transformed into glorious bodies, the very next thing he writes is, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. That's going to happen. So now, today, stand firm. Here in 1 Corinthians, having spent a long chapter on the doctrine of the resurrection, the very next thing he writes is, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is your future hope. So today, persevere in your faith. This gives you strength. This gives you endurance. But there's a second reason why the resurrection of the body matters so much, which is the comfort and joy and hope that it gives us about those who have gone before us in the Lord. I read something a couple of months ago. Um, There's a short article. It was called, There Will Most Assuredly Come a Morning. It was the story of a little boy by the name of Finn, He lived in Tennessee. He had two brothers. His favorite food was avocado. He was three years old, and he had cancer. For almost the whole of his short life, he battled it, but finally, uh, at three, it took him. His pastor wrote of how we gathered in a cemetery chapel next to a coffin that seemed too small to be real. We told stories and gave hugs and worshiped God because that's what you do when you have no other answers. You lift your praise to the one who knows what it's like to lose a son. And you put your hope in that son's resurrection. Finn's dad is is a man called Dan. I want to share what he wrote about their experience of losing Finn. 
Every night before bed, we had the same routine. We'd get a glass of water and say our prayers. We'd tuck him in, and he would give us just the sweetest, the gentlest hug and kiss you can imagine. And every night without fail, he would finish by saying, see you in the morning. Finn is profoundly missed. Where once there was a loving and joyful presence in our lives, there is now a gaping, jagged, raw hole. The loss of Finn is so real, so physical, so emotional, and it is so life-dominating that it is hard to think of anything beyond our present moment of sorrow. And as we cry out to God in our sorrow and our anger, it's hard to see any hope in any of this. And yet, in the midst of this bitter grief, the Bible does still give us hope. Psalm 30 says that weeping may stay for the night, but joy comes in the morning. It teaches us that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the things that are will not always be. There is hope for those in Christ Jesus and a glorious future to look forward to. We may be deep in the night now, but there will most assuredly come a morning. And with that morning will come great joy. For now we mourn, but we cling to the hope that we will see Finn again. We will see him without tubes, without bags, and without the ravages of cancer. We will laugh and we will run. We will probably eat avocados. Finn, we will see you in the morning. Life is sometimes just unspeakably hard, isn't it? Sometimes just unspeakably hard. But God is always immeasurably good. And His plans for us are indescribably beautiful and glorious. Even out of the most real, the most physical loss. He will bring the most real, the most physical life. Let's pray. Father, we think on that morning, 2,000 years ago, that gloriously bright morning when something happened that changed everything forever and a body in a tomb was raised out of all the ugliness and hopelessness of death filled with life, just life beyond all measure, life eternal, life overflowing, life abundant. I give thanks for this great central gospel truth. And we give thanks for what Your Word unfolds for us about its implications, about what this means for all who are united to Christ by faith, who can never be separated from Him. We give thanks for the hope that is ours, not only of a life, 
but of a rich and full life as the, as the complete people that we are, body and mind and, and, and soul. Thank you that this is the good purpose that you have for us. And we do pray that you would encourage our hearts. We do pray that you would put strength in us, that the implications of that, what is a future reality for us, would reach back into our present, shape our lives, strengthen our hearts, that we might serve you. We pray that we might be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord in the light of all that you have done and are doing and will do for us. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.